Good morning. You know, year after year, here in this body at Pickerington, our leaders, our elders, ask you to make sacrifice. They ask you to give financially to provide ministry and care to efforts that they have deemed to be important efforts, things that we should invest in. Like, for example, uh, Midwestern Children's Home is a foster short-term care facility for young children that have been neglected or abused or don't have a home and they're taken care of, and we send money to them so that they can do that and run that operation. Year after year, Fort Hill is a church camp uh, about an hour and a half from here that operates, that sees hundreds upon hundreds of kids every summer investing into them love and worth and value and the word of God. There's a congregation that probably already met in Tune, Switzerland. They already met, right, today, for the day? Um, that we, year after year now, are caring for and investing in and taking care of and committing to. There's a man named John Grubb who is ministering to people in China right now, all over the far east part of the world, trying to get the gospel to people. And I want to ask a question with you this morning that is a pretty basic question, but I think that we'll find the answer to be simple yet significant. And the question is this, why should we do that? You ever ask yourself why? Now, don't just say an answer quickly in your mind. Really think, why should we care for some children that live a couple hours from here that we may never meet? Why should we be concerned about um, people in Far East Asia getting the gospel or even being taken care of in their basic necessities? Why should we be concerned about some people who are meeting, you know, eight to ten hours away on an airplane in Switzerland? Why should we be concerned about that? Why should we care about people who we don't know and that we may never meet? And what we're really asking is, why are those people worth it? Why are they worth it? What really decides a person's worth or value? And my guess is this morning that many of you here today are not really asking that question critically, like me meaning I'm not sure they're worth it. Many of you in here are probably not saying, I don't think the children at Midwestern uh, Children's Home are worth it, or even the, those that are receiving the gospel in Asia. Many of you are probably not asking the question, are they really worth it? But here's what you're probably asking. Am I worth it? What determines my value? And the question really boils down to this. What is it that determines a human being's value? What gives a person worth? What gives a person dignity and importance? We are in the middle of a cultural crisis right now surrounding this question. That's why I bring it up. I don't anticipate that many of you in here don't think it's worth it to care for children in a foster home or make sure kids can go to a church camp. I don't think that many of you are wondering about that. But we are living in the midst of a cultural crisis because we are detached from any objective reason to explain why a human being is worth anything. Can you really explain what gives a human value? We like to think that we all have value, but you know, we don't really have a good explanation for it in our culture right now. 
The best we can come up with, because we really detach ourselves from things that give us value, the best that humans can come up with right now, this is the most contemporary explanation of why human beings have value, is what psychologists call capacity. You heard of capacity? Capacity is just basically saying what you're able to do. You know, a factory has capacity. It's able to make, let's say, 300 seats in a night, right, guys, right here in the front? Or let's say a factory where maybe Jeff Pettis works, they're able to make so much food per day. That, that capacity is what you're able to do. And what we're finding is in our culture today, we're assigning human value based upon capacity. What is a human able to do? Therefore, they're worth something. What a person can do determines their value. Peter Singer is a uh, professor at Princeton. He's a bioethicist, whatever that means. And um, I guess it means he's a smart guy. And he came out with a couple, uh, a few years ago, a theory that really upset people. Let me read it to you. Here's what it was. His theory on human life, the value of human life. He said this. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human like a dog or a pig, we will often find the non-human, the dog or the pig, to have superior capacity than a severely defective human being. And he says this, that species membership, meaning just that the fact that the human infant, although defective, is a homo sapien, is a human. Species membership alone is not relevant. Humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they're members of their own species are similar to, he calls it speciesism, similar to racism, like, like a people that would think a certain race is greater than another race. He's saying, listen, if you look at a human and just think that that's more valuable than any other being, just because it's a human, that's like, it's, a, it's an ism. But listen, he upset people, but he's being consistent with human culture today. That if our worth is based upon what we're able to do, he's right. He goes on to say this. This is trembling. Listen. He would go on to publish a theory on how we should determine the value of human life with a lady named Helga. I don't, can't pronounce her last name. And he said this, a period of 28 days after birth should be allowed before an infant is accepted into having the same rights as other humans. What we should do is give a period of 28 days past birth to determine if that child has the same amount of potential capacity as other humans. And if it doesn't possess the same kind of capacity, then we should discard that human life. And that shocks some people, right? Now, this guy's a professor at Princeton right now. That shocks us a little bit. But he's being consistent with a culture that says we only base human value upon what humans can do. Now, Mr. Singer being consistent uh, is fair to that point. And this, now my question is this, is this how we value human life? What we're able to accomplish, what we're able to do? Do we care uh, about Midwestern children's home? Because you know what? Maybe someday one of those kids at Midwestern Children's Home will invent some new thing that's going to make my life better. So we should send some money to them because that's going to make my life better. That's capacity. You see, most people would say that they do not believe that. Even the non-religious would say that. 
We would say that infants, although they don't have much capacity, or elderly, or the disabled, all have value because they're human. Amen to that? Okay. Most of us believe that human life has value because we're human. But let me ask you a personal question. Do you believe you have value because you're a human? my guess is most of us in here while we would say others outside of us have value just because they're human the person we look at in the mirror in the morning we're not always sure has value just because we're human my guess is most of you in here judge yourselves based upon what you are able to do or not able to do what you've accomplished or not accomplished and your self-worth is directly attached to your performance and so when you are performing well it goes up and you feel better about yourself in comparison to others Look what I'm able to do, and I feel better about myself. And when you aren't performing well, and you're doing poorly, or you fail at something, you begin to question, am I worth something? You see, what Psalm 8 is trying to get to is where humans get their value. And Psalm 8 teaches us this answer. It does so in a very um, kind of interesting way. It does so by taking our eyes off of ourselves. It's kind of counterintuitive. But what the psalmist wants us to do, David, is he wants us to lift our eyes off of ourselves to God and find out that when we see God, we'll begin to see our value in the majesty and mindfulness of God and in the mission of man. Let me start with number one, the majesty of God. The majesty. That when you begin to understand the majesty of God, you will begin to understand your worth as a human. But we've got to start there. This might be strange for us, But for us to establish value as humans, we've actually got to take our eyes off of ourselves. And this is strange because usually if we're going to determine something's value, we inspect that thing, right? If we're going to buy a car and they say it's this much money, we're going to value that car. We're going to look at the car, right? But this is different for us. And it's in stark contrast to our culture. The language of our culture has transferred all of the responsibilities to the self. That we say things like, you should make your own meaning that you should create your own worth, that you should establish your own way and find your own path. And what's happened is culture has said that we should look to ourselves for meaning, for purpose, for value and direction. You know what the result has been as we've looked to ourselves for all these answers? Epidemic levels of anxiety, confusion, and depression. You know, we've got the greatest generation, any greatest generation in here, a few of you? We've got baby boomers. How many baby boomers we got here today? Yay, baby boomers. Woo, not, not, quite, not quite the greatest, but the decent gen. Yeah, you guys are all right. How about Gen X? Any Gen Xers in here? All right. Millennials? Any millennials? I only say I'm a millennial when it's good. When it's bad, I'm like, no, I'm not a millennial. But any millennials? That's all you guys. You know what millennial generation is labeled now? The anxious generation. They're anxious all the time. Anxiety abounds. Because we have transferred the responsibility of meaning, purpose, worth, value, beauty to the self. We've asked the self to define all of that. And it's left us without value. We don't know how to value ourselves. And here's what the psalmist does. When considering our value, he takes his eyes off of himself and looks to the heavens in verse 1 of chapter 8. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You see, the summary is this. 
When you look at God, you say, he is majestic. He's unbelievable. His majesty is, first of all, unsearchable, beyond all human comprehension. If you just look into creation, you begin to take a moment and notice how unbelievably majestic God is. He's majestic in his overwhelming size. You know, Fairfield County is about 500 square miles. That's where we live, or where we are right now. The state of Ohio is about 220 miles wide at its widest point. The earth is about 7,917 and a half miles wide its diameter. And then the solar system in which the earth exists is 5.6 billion miles in diameter. But we're just a solar system inside of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And you know the galaxy is 100,000 light years in its diameter. And you know, inside of our local group of galaxies, we're kind of a puny one. The Milky Way is kind of small. We're tiny. And you get all these galaxies into a local galaxy, which is called a local group. There's about 50 of them together, and that is 100 billion stars in this one local group of galaxies that all have planets going around it. And these local groups actually join into what they call superclusters. We're in the Virgo supercluster, which is 15 million light years at its span. And the universe that we can see as far as we can see now is 93 billion light years wide. And here's, here's what that means, because I don't even know how to compute that, right? I started Googling, like, okay, if the earth was the size of a grape, what does that mean? I, I gave up. Here's all, here's all you need to know about the expanse of this. That the farthest star away from us, the light that it's emitting right now, will show up here in 46 billion years. That's how long it takes. And you come all the way down to me, and I take about a foot and a half wide. I'm trying to work on that. God is majestic in the overwhelming size. But then the meticulous detail of the earth. At any point in time, Smithsonian tells us that there are 10 quintillion individual insects alive in the earth right now. And every three days, there are new species being discovered in the Amazon rainforest. Every three days, we're discovering something new, meticulous detail. It's majestic, the earth, and it's stunning beauty. Just get an Instagram account. Someone will tell you about it. And it's majestic in its incredible force. You've seen this earth shake and the winds blow. God's majesty is unsearchable. But number two, God's majesty is accessible. He says there that the mouths of infants and babes have the ability to express praise to this God. Jesus would later tell us that we ought to become like children. To enter the kingdom. Paul would tell us that God uses foolish things and weak things of the earth to destroy the wisdom of the world and those who think they're strong. His point is this. His majesty may be unending, but it is not unavailable. You can understand how majestic God is. It may be incomprehensible, but you can begin to taste how majestic God is. See, it actually takes work for you to miss God's majesty. 
And the fuel for that work is our human pride. It takes work to miss the majesty of God. It just takes awareness to see the majesty of God. And the fuel for this awareness is just simply humility. Have you ever noticed it doesn't take a lot of work for children to believe? But as we grow up, we begin to trust ourselves more and trust others less and trust God less. And we begin to develop pride. And our, our little children that are just here yesterday, we had 70 or 80 kids here learning. And they love to learn about things that are bigger than them because they live in a world where they're dependent beings. And we grow up and we begin to think we're independent beings. And we think we can run our own lives and control everything. And in our human pride, we begin to think, well, maybe it's just us. And Jesus said we've got to become like children in their humility. So number one, you've got to get your, if you want to know your value, you've got to get your eyes to the majesty of God. And then you've got to get your eyes to the mindfulness of God. You know, one of the great challenges of rich and famous people, I, I could tell you about all this um, from reading on People magazine, is um, one of the great challenges of rich and famous people is the people who remember them. Who begin to say, I know you, like second half cousins who show up and like, hey, you remember me now that you're famous and rich? The stories of NFL players and NBA players who make millions of dollars that end up bankrupt because they had a $100,000 a month payroll of half cousins who were riding around with them who were on their books. You know, there's stories of this all the time because when people get rich and famous, people begin to remember them, right? I have never heard anyone complain about being remembered by a famous person. Never. And this is what David is feeling and expressing in the psalm. He's lifting his eyes up and saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's overwhelming. And he says in verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him, that you visit him? David, in all of God's majesty, is overwhelmed that God just simply remembers. And God doesn't just remember you like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've heard of you before. Yeah, yeah, hey, how you doing? And walks by. He says he does two things. First, he says he's mindful of us. That means he has a compassionate remembering, that he moves towards us, that he thinks about us. And then he visits us or cares for us. That means he pays attention and observes and then begins to take care. He takes action to care for us. I'll never forget my first kind of semi-experience with this. I was in sixth grade, and in our local town, where I grew up in a small town where everybody knows everybody, there was a boy, who, a, a senior in high school, who was a good basketball player. He was first team All-State, he was player of the year, and he got a basketball scholarship to a Division I school, and we all were in awe of him. You know, he's six foot ten, and all of us were like five foot four, and he was like, wow. And he came back one summer, and we were down at the playground in our local town. And I'll never forget, he showed up to play basketball. We're all there, you know, with our uh, clothes on, ready to play some basketball. And he said, hey, Anthony, would you like to play basketball on my team? I think he was a pity thing or something. You know, he picked the little scrawny kids. Or maybe he just wanted to see if he could win with nobody else who was good, but whatever it was. And all of a sudden, my little fifth grade, sixth grade mind, I lit up. And you know what I felt? Valuable. Why did I feel valuable? Because the most famous guy in our whole town remembered me. And just try to imagine this for a moment. The majestic, magnificent, incomprehensible God of the universe across 100 billion light years that we know of. 
zeroes in like a microscope and says, I know your name. Moses, when he was scared to leave Mount Sinai, Exodus 33, when God's saying, get up, we got to go. Moses said, I will not leave, God, unless you go with us. Show me your glory. And he come down, God said, listen, Moses, I'll be with you, I promise, because I know your name. Intimacy with God means he knows your name. You want to establish value apart from just what you accomplish because that's going to go like this the rest of your life lift your eyes off yourself and see the majesty of God's famousness this is what David is saying God you are the most famous greatest being of all time you know one of the big arguments today that when all the basketball stuff was going on is who is the greatest player of all time and those of you that say Michael Jordan are wrong but you can continue in your life it's LeBron James right <laughs> but the big argument is going on about this right now listen, in 300 years, people might not know who Michael Jordan is. In a small town in Africa, people don't know who LeBron James is right now. In all times, all generations, in every corner of the earth, people know who God is. They might say different names, they know who he is. He is the most famous being in the world. And he says, I know you. cherish you that's human value the last thing i want you to see is the mission god has given us in verses five through eight david does not forget this he lifts his eyes and sees the majesty of god he's humbled when he remembers that god is mindful of him this tiny scrawny forgotten youngest brother and then he remembers that god has given us a mission as mankind you see, what makes God's mission for mankind so unique, so different, don't miss this, is this is what gives you intrinsic value, dignity, is that God gives you a mission in reverse order than humans give us mission. God says, I want you to be something, then I want you to do something. I want you to make sure you know who you are before you know what you're going to do. That's the mission that God has given us. You see, humans, we reverse this. We do something, then we feel like we are something. We feel like we're somebody because of what we do. That's why one of the first questions out of our mouth when we're getting to know somebody is, what do you, come on, fill in the blank, do? And when people want to get to know us, the first thing we tell them is what we do. Because we humans think who we are is based upon what we do. And God says, no, 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 I want you to be before you'll ever do. You see, first of all, he says, when he gives us our occupation, our mission, he says, first of all, I want you, there's something I want you to be. In verse 5, he says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly being. Some of you might have the word angels. That's not a great translation. You know what the word is in the original? Elohim. You've heard of Elohim? That's the word for God. God. And what he's saying, he's referencing Gen Genesis 1.26. He's not saying you're tiny. He's saying, I've made you just right below me. You've been made in my image. The thing God wants you to be before you do is made in the image of God, an image bearer of God. You were made to make the invisible God visible. When God was creating the world, he's saying, how can I let people know who I am? He put the stars in the sky the trees in the ground, the flowers in the field, and he says, they'll know parts of me by this. 
but how will I demonstrate to the world who I am? Let me make man. Let me make woman. And let me show them how to relate. And inside that picture of humanity, people will begin to see who I am. You'll be my image bearers. He says we are crowned with glory and honor. We are, because we're made in the image of God. That means we have majesty and splendor. That means we have dignity and worth. You see, the thing that makes you human and not a pig or a dog is what makes you divine. There's a part of you that is. There's something about humans that make us ask questions about eternity and significance and beauty and worth that other things don't ask. And that part of you is divine. You've got to know that you were made to be something before you were ever made to do something. The thing he told us to do, the something to do, is to rule creation. Verses 6 through 8 tell us these things. He, give, he gave us dominion over the works of his hands. And he put all things under our feet. He told us to subdue the earth. Adam was told to tend to the garden and keep it. To produce from the garden and to protect it. You see, humanity was created to protect and care for creation. But also to produce in it. God made Adam a farmer. He said, here's some seed. Here's dirt. You know what Adam had to do? Get his hands in the dirt and pour some water and grow things. He made us to do that. He says, as my image bearers, I want you to be doers who make and rule creation. But here's the sad reality. We as humans failed at our mission, didn't we? We're not great at being image bearers. We're image distorters because when you see me, I don't give you the great picture of God, I promise. I'm kind of not very great at it yet. I'm still praying that God will help me show you more of who Jesus looks like, but I'm not great at it yet. And so when you look at me, you don't always see the image of God. And when I look at you, there's still parts of us, right, that don't reflect who God is. That's the distortion of sin. And the part of us that's been broken by sin makes us not rule this earth well. We don't selflessly serve in this world to make it better. We selfishly consume. And we have failed at our mission. Now, here's the question. Because we've failed at our mission of what God has created us to be, have we lost our value to God? Have you lost it? In fact, on the contrary, it's within our failing that God demonstrates how much more he values us. You see, the earliest Christians, the reason we choose the Psalms on this Sunday morning series is our early brothers and sisters sang these songs in their worship. Hebrews chapter 2 and other places quote Psalm 8. Our early brothers and sisters turned to Psalm chapter 8 because they saw something. You see, they didn't just hear our voice in this psalm, right? They didn't just hear the human voice, our voice saying, God, you have made us this way. They heard somebody else's voice in Psalm 8. Whose voice did they hear? They heard the voice of Jesus in this psalm. He was made a little lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and splendor. You see, God... Jesus was God, who had all the majesty that glory could ever fulfill. And he, Jesus, was mindful of us, right? So much so that he would come and remember us and care for us and visit us. He came with a mission as a man, like we have a mission. And he displayed the image of God perfectly. And he subjected creation under his feet. You see, you and I were, were crowned with glory and splendor at creation. But there's something different about Jesus. When did Jesus get his crown? It wasn't at creation, but it was at his crucifixion. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, quoting Psalm 8, says this. But we see him, now listen, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And now here's what Jesus is doing. The perfect man on a mission to save us is calling us to see him high and lifted up at the cross as the greatest demonstration, not only of God's justice and holiness, but his demonstration of your worth. The cross tells us how unbelievably guilty we are and how undeniably loved and cherished we are. But you've got to look. And as the greatest demonstration of our worth and value, Jesus says, you matter not because of what you do, but because of who God says you are and who you belong to. And his call is this, rise up and bow down at his wounded feet and lay down the crown that you have made of your own glory and kingdom so that you might receive a crown of righteousness from him who judges righteousness. And the choice is yours. Where will you get your value? Either intrinsically from God or externally from the world that says what you do is how your value is based. The choice is yours. You've got to observe his majesty, appreciate his mindfulness, receive his mission, and let your value be restored in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing. If you need something, you can come.